Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Probably the most repeated refrain uh, from the back seats of cars when you have kids is, how much longer? (laughs) Are we there yet? And as parents, you're thinking the whole time, like, how much longer until these people get their own car and, like, move out of my house, right? (laughs) But really, this is, like, how most of life is, right? I mean, we just wonder throughout our entire lives, like how much longer are we going to have to endure whatever unpleasant reality we find ourselves currently in? And then realizing as time goes on that what's just around the corner is just another unpleasant reality. That's how life is. We know it, but it doesn't help us to stop trying to get out from underneath that reality. A lot of times what we try and do is we try and take a shortcut, (laughs) only to realize that shortcuts don't really work. And so, yeah, maybe all of you are like, speaking of how much longer, how much longer is this sermon series going to be? Because it's terribly depressing. Well, I've got good news for you. It ends today. We'll move on to something different. We're at the end of this sermon series on the book of Lamentations dealing with grief care. Almost at the end. You still got to listen to this one. And you're already here, so you might as well stay. (laughs) So just a quick recap of what we've gone over for the past several weeks is we've been using the book of Lamentations as a roadmap for how we, as human beings, move through the grieving process. And the Book of Lamentations is a series of prophetic poems that detail the communal grief that the nation of Israel experienced at the hands of the empire of Babylon. Their home was destroyed, their armies were killed off, and the people were carted off into exile. And so we find in the midst of these very depressing, yet very honest poems, the grieving process of Israel. And that process, as we've talked about, is a process of moving through tears, talk, and time. Now, we've talked about the importance of of tears, of crying, specifically crying out to God as a fundamental expression of our humanity. To be authentically human is to cry out in anguish when we experience or are confronted with evil and with pain and with brokenness. Because this is also God's reaction to these realities. And we all carry in us the image of God. In the last week, we talked about how talking 
is the fundamental driving force behind our healing. I think I told you all to get a therapist, I believe. Maybe you did, I don't know. But the reality in this is that talking about our pain shares the burden of it, and it allows us to process our pain, our grief, in a healthy and productive way, and it keeps us moving forward in the process towards restoration. And so I hope that in the past week, you found a way to be honest about your pain and about your grief and to start this process for yourself. But you're likely thinking to yourself, like, yeah, that's all great, but, you know, like, how, how long is this going to take? Like, are we there yet? <laughs> how many more miles? Can we get a snack? Like, what's going on? And the answer is probably not yet. Probably not there yet. And I don't really know how much longer. I suppose it's just going to take, you know, like as long as it takes. Which can seem arduous and monotonous. You know, this allowing time to take time thing. However, that's just the way the world works. The difference is whether or not we allow the time that it takes to grieve to swallow us up, or if we allow ourselves to move forward and grow during the process. And what that comes down to, the difference, is whether or not we hold on to the ultimate hope that restoration is coming. See, for the ancient Israelites, their ultimate hope was that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would someday restore them from exile. Now, for these folks in particular, for the, the people of Israel, their grief was very much wrapped up in the fact that it was self-inflicted in a lot of ways. And, and the poems of Lamentations speak to this reality. See, the, the ancient Israelites, they knew that what happened to them was a direct result of their failure as a nation to follow Yahweh. And so infused in these lament poems is an element of honest confession. But sometimes that's just not the case for us. Sometimes it is. Sometimes our problems are our own fault. But a lot of times... That's just not the way that it is. So don't get hung up on that language in this portion of the scriptures. So today we're going to read just a, a portion of Lamentations chapter 4. This is going to be verses 17 through 22. It says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. We were watching eagerly for a nation that could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens, and they chased us on the mountains. They lie in wait for us in the wilderness. The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life, was taken into their pits. The one whom we said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter Edom, you that live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. 
The punishment of of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. So most of poem four details the arduousness of time spent waiting. And it reaches its climax here in this text. And the final words are words of hope. Hope that the time of exile will come to an end. And that the nations that committed these atrocious crimes against Israel will be dealt with justly. There's an old saying that goes, the only way out is through. Which means that there's no magic or miraculous way out of any situation that we find ourselves in. This is especially true of healing. Healing is a process that we have to move through. And one of the things that I really hate about this is that something being a process implies two things about it. That it takes work and that it takes time. And the reason that I don't like that is because I'm lazy and I'm impatient. Like, I don't want to work and I don't want it to, I don't want to wait, right? And so, so I don't want to, the discomfort that I'm living in to take time and for me to have to take ownership and work through it. I just, I just want to be out of it now. And that's just not how things work. And the even more annoying reality about it is that we can't sprint our way through the pain. Pain's not a nicely paved blacktop. It's more like sugar sand or like river muck. You got to keep moving forward, otherwise you'll sink. But it's not easy. You got to trudge your way through it. It's hard work. But it's work that you have to do. The GIs who landed in Normandy in World War II trudged their way across Europe. The journey was treacherous and laborious. And I can only imagine that there was a deep desire that crept up in them late at night to just go home. To take the easy way out. But what the GIs knew was that there was no easy way home. There was trouble behind them and trouble in front of them. And so they developed a saying that the only way home is through Berlin. See, what the GIs knew was that the only way out was through. And unfortunately, through for them meant through the trial that was the Nazi front line. And so while our own grief is likely not as physically threatening as pushing forward through Hitler's war machine, the sentiment is similar. The 16th century Christian mystic, St. John of the Cross, called a spiritual crisis, such as those we have when we move through times of extreme grief, as the dark night of the soul. And what that means is that we are moving through a time in life that profoundly challenges our core beliefs about God, 
about ourselves and about the world around us. And it's in these times uh, of great grief, of deep depression, or of spiritual turmoil that we are given the opportunity to change. For St. John of the Cross, he believed that however painful, the dark night of the soul was a means of personal growth in which a person's ego fades and they become more aware and capable of loving the world around them. Basically, the process, though painful, has a purpose. And that purpose is to allow us to come out of our grief, out of our pain, transformed for the purpose of healing the world around us. And so this is not to say that God inflicts us with pain, but it is to say that God meets us in our pain and in our grief and walks with us through it so that over time we might be able to find our way out of it and be better for it. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to the dark night of the soul and really just suffering in general. Paul was a man who suffered greatly, both physically and emotionally throughout his ministry to the world. He was booed. He was rioted against. He was beaten. He was arrested. He was jailed. He was shipwrecked and held captive for most of his ministry. He was a man who embodied the reality that people who live for God still suffer and suffer greatly. We experience all of the brokenness that this world has to offer. We deal with depression. We deal with death. We deal with mental illness. We deal with addiction. We deal with alcoholism. We deal with the fact that things just aren't fair. And we deal with the fact that sometimes, even though we come and we sit here on Sunday mornings, we just don't feel blessed by God. And Paul's response to this, and particularly to the Christians in Rome who faced great persecution from the Roman government, his response was to frame this reality of suffering on a cosmic scale. And so in the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul says these words. This is Romans eight eighteen through 25. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Not only the creation, but we who ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. What Paul is trying to point at here is that the entire world, the earth included, is in this process 
of allowing time to heal it. See, when evil entered the world, it actually broke everything, the earth included. All of creation has been affected and is dealing with the consequences of sin. But the ultimate hope is that eventually, all that is broken will be made right. So while that reality may be long after our time here on this earth, what is important for us to understand is that there is a glimmer of that grand hope for us in our time on earth. And that glimmer of hope is the promise that Jesus can and will restore the brokenness of our own lives and of the world we live in today. That Jesus can and will help us build something new out of the rubble of our lives when it feels like everything has fallen apart. So what I really love about Paul's letter to the Romans is what he says just a few lines later. This is Romans 8, verse 28. He says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so I know now that this is one of the most overused verses in your Bible. Christian bookstores have made millions of dollars selling like little picture frames and postcards with this verse on them. But this right here, this discussion that we're in, this context of moving through grief is the context that this verse is supposed to be spoken into. Our grief and the ultimate hope, the reason that we can keep moving through the process of healing is that deep down we know that God is and will continue to work it for our good. And that good informs what St. John of the Cross believed about the dark night of the soul. It was a process of moving us towards having lives that are more in line with God's purpose in this world. And God's purpose in this world is to reach those who are hurting and broken. And just who do you think that God uses to reach those who are hurting and broken? People who were hurting and broken in the very same way that they are. People who know what it's like to experience that very same type of hell that they are experiencing now. Who know the way out and can help them find their way. The purpose is that we become wounded healers. People whose suffering stretches our hearts to reach out and bring comfort and hope to those who are being consumed by their grief. We become people who allow the time that it takes for us to heal to be molded into people who more accurately reflect Christ, the ultimate wounded healer. And so today, I'd like to tell you a story. A story about healing, particularly about my own healing journey from grief. 
It's a journey that I'm still on, but it's a journey that has deeply shaped my theology of suffering, of lament, and grief over the past several years. So in 2013, I met a man named Leslie within the context of a recovery meeting. I was still struggling with the the brokenness of my life, sifting through the rubble. And I was just honestly like really, really sad all of the time. I tried to wear it well, but, but I knew that deep down, I was just, I was depressed. And what initially struck me about uh, this man, Leslie, was that he was happy all the time, like annoyingly happy all the time, you know? Like almost kind of weird, but that's just who he was. And in his joy and in his happiness, he always had time to sit with people like me who were just sad. To sit and talk with people who were having a hard time to give of himself, even though, you know, it's like the kind of folks that would kill a good vibe, you know? Leslie didn't strike me as the kind of guy who needed to be in a recovery program, you know? But eventually, he kept coming around, and I kept coming around, so I I asked him, I, I, I asked him to help me. And he began to pour into my life in a way that fundamentally transformed me. As we talked about my mess of a life, he also shared with me the pain that he lived with and had lived through. You see, Leslie was a hospice nurse. He cared for and he loved on people every single day that weren't very long for this world. But that was just present stuff. There was past pain that he dealt with as well. This man who presented himself as a nearly seven-foot-tall, jolly, and gentle giant was a man who had grown up struggling with being gay in Alabama. Life had not been easy. But what Leslie committed himself to was a life of serving others who had struggled with drugs and alcohol like he did. And there's an untold number of persons whose life he impacted, who found hope through the role that he took on as in being a wounded healer. In December of 2016, I was called by uh, someone who was concerned about Leslie as he hadn't been in contact in a day or so, and he hadn't shown up for work. And I had a key to his house, so I went over there and met some, some other folks there. And what we found when we got to his house was that his home had been burglarized and that Leslie was a victim of homicide. And as I stood in the road out front of his house for several hours, just numb, watching police and forensic investigators enter the house of my friend, entering a home in which I have found profound healing, entering the home of the person who had drugged me out of some pretty deep emotional holes. I looked around at the group of people that was beginning to assemble in the street, all people who had been touched 
and experienced Leslie's love the same way that I had. And what I continue to hold on to is that through the entire journey of healing that I've embarked on, I was not ever in it alone. What this entire grieving process has shown me is that time takes a long time. And when I think I'm over it, it comes back in waves. But what I've also learned is the deep empathy that I have for those who experience loss. And what it has done is it has added another dimension to my own role as a wounded healer. You see, God has worked this senseless mess, this painful loss, into something that I can use to help people the way that Leslie helped me. And on the days when it's the hardest, I can lean on that fact. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make me less angry that he wasn't standing next to me when I got married. That he's not here to see my wife and I become parents. That he wasn't there to watch me follow the call that God placed on my life. That he encouraged me each step of the way to take. But it does help me to understand that the anger doesn't help me help anyone. And Leslie would be disappointed if I let something like anger stand in the way of doing God's work. And so I tell you all of that to let you know that I, I know. I know that it hurts. And I know that it doesn't ever really go away. That time drags on, and sometimes we wonder if it'll ever get any better. And my answer is really yes. It, it does and will get better. But that's not because the pain isn't there. It gets better because you resolve to do something constructive with it. Because you choose to let the pain fuel your compassion for the people in this world that are suffering just like you have. Because you've let that compassion drive you to bring the hope of God into the lives of people who need a reason to keep trudging forward through their own dark night of the soul. The reality is that, you know, I kind of misled you. I've told you that you'd move through the grief process of tears, talk, and time. But the reality is that there's no real expiration date on the time part. It's really more about how you use it that allows healing to happen. And so what I offer you is the option of becoming a wounded healer. I invite you to use the brokenness and the grief that you've experienced to God's advantage. To reach out and touch the lives of those who God puts in your path. And to offer them the healing hope of God's love as you trudge the road towards a new and renewed life together. So let's pray. God, we thank you that in the midst of our trials and our suffering, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of the realization that, you know, life just isn't the way that it's supposed to be, that you are there with us. 
That you aren't just there with us figuratively, but that you are literally there with us. That you literally came to earth and lived a human life. That you experienced the loss of loved ones. That you experienced the rejection of a community. That you experienced the betrayal from a friend. And that you experienced the pain of the cross. And so God, in our dark night of the soul, in our deepest brokenness, please remind us that everything that is broken in our lives is something that you have experienced as well. That you walk alongside of us that you carry us, that you move us to become people who are willing and able to reach the world with your love. So God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.